Hi, I'm Carla Harris, host of Access and Opportunity, an award-winning show from Morgan Stanley that brings you diverse voices working to solve some of our toughest challenges, like Diana Chow. I think when it comes to college students, what I would love to see is a greater recognition of the need for cultural diversity of care provision. Find out how Diana is applying a global perspective to better mental health care for students. Listen to Access and Opportunity wherever you find your podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Donald Trump hearts Kim Jong-un of North Korea and Angela Merkel and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan have a uh, meeting in Germany with mixed results. This is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg filling in again for Mary Kissel. And I am uh, coming to you from our podcasting studio here on the uh, banks of the River Thames in London, speaking to my friend and colleague Hugo Restall uh, on the line from his accustomed, secure, undisclosed location in Asia. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Joe. Good to be with you again. Well, it's it's great to have you here because we are going uh, to your part of the world uh, to talk about what else Donald Trump and North Korea um, you know, just when you thought it couldn't get any stranger, we have President Trump at a campaign appearance uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia this weekend, uh, talking about how he and uh, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un fell in love uh, after Kim wrote uh, Trump beautiful letters and characterized the U.S. as having a very good relationship with North Korea. Hugo, uh, this... <laughs> is a very strange turn in a story that has already seen so many strange turns from the fire and fury comments that we heard from Trump threatening North Korea last year to a summit in June in Singapore where the leaders seem to be getting along and striking some sort of deal to denuclearize North Korea and the, the Korean Peninsula. And then we had concerns about whether they trusted each other and North Korea was... Um, uh, you know, living up to whatever agreements it had made to President Trump in Singapore. And now it seems to be back on. I mean, as love affairs go, this one is very tempestuous. Right. This is like a Harlequin romance uh, novel um, with a with a bodice ripping cover on the on the front. Uh, Trump is, uh, I think, you know, partly was uh, joking around. I mean, let's let's be charitable and say um, he is not uh, in love with Kim Jong Un but is trying to emphasize the rapport just as he uh, uh, has done with other world leaders, especially uh, Xi Jinping. Apparently, the relationship with Xi Jinping is on the rocks now, so maybe uh, that's why Trump is uh, is being so warm towards Kim Jong-un. Well, I, I feel like we need to, to take a look at this issue two ways. And, I mean, one has to do with just the underlying issue of diplomacy on the Korean Peninsula, because, I mean, it, it has been a very rocky relationship, even in this era when we were told that the, the summit in Singapore back in June was going to, uh, you know, hark a new cooperation here. I mean, one of the problems that uh, I see with this kind of rhetoric from President Trump is that it seems like it's rewarding uh, Kim Jong-un with a very positive relationship with the U.S. when we haven't actually seen any progress on a lot of the underlying problems that uh, were causing tension in the first place. So we've had a lot of talk from Pyongyang about dealing with the, you know, denuclearizing or trying to ratchet down tensions, but we haven't seen a lot of action yet. 
Right. So tactically, it's a very strange time for a remark like this. Uh, the North, it was actually the same day that the North Korean foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, uh, was addressing the UN General Assembly and was being relatively tough on the U.S., saying uh, the U.S. has to regain North Korea's trust before there'll be any uh, further progress. So for Trump to come out and say this on, on Saturday night um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, as, a, uh, as a tactical maneuver. Uh, the, the North Koreans uh, are, are essentially saying that they want the U.S. to make further concessions before they'll even consider um, doing anything substantive on uh, denuclearization. Most people think that that uh, would mean uh, a statement uh, ending the, North, uh, the Korean War uh, from 1950 to 53, um, and uh, uh, you know, setting the countries on the road towards a uh, formal peace treaty, um, and presumably re- also relaxing sanctions to some degree. And, you know, beyond that, we also just can't uh, underestimate how damaging, how how untrue it is for uh, you know, Trump to be talking about Kim in such glowing terms when, you know, also you have this factor which also uh, hangs like a cloud over so much of, uh, you know, Korean diplomacy, this problem of Kim's oppression of his people at home. I mean, it seems like you're sending a very bad message when, uh, you know, as you've just pointed out, Trump is rewarding, um, you know, sort of at, at best, very mixed uh, diplomatic behavior and at the same time is, is dialing back on some of the stronger and, and you know, much more helpful rhetoric that we had had from Washington earlier in the year uh, about the human rights abuses at home, about the fact that there is something fundamentally illegitimate about a regime that acts towards its own way, uh, its own people, the way that Kim treats uh, his North Korean citizens. If we go back to January, uh, when Trump gave his State of the Union address, he brought a North Korean dissident as his guest to the speech and really laid out what a horrific regime uh, North Korea is. And, uh, you know, that it really stands out in the in the 20th century uh, litany of, of totalitarian states. The North Korean uh, North Korean state is arguably the worst, the worst. So for uh, and and Kim Jong Un, it must be said also, has not um, changed that whatsoever. I mean, the the gulags uh, continue to uh, imprison hundreds of thousands of North Koreans in in, uh, in horrendous conditions where they're essentially worked to death uh, for any sort of political crime. Um, and so, it, you know, North Korea is is the poster child for bad human rights. What does this do to U.S. credibility on the issue when it comes to other states that uh, if you um, make nice with with Donald Trump um, and send him beautiful letters, um, perhaps you can uh, avoid uh, having your your human rights record uh, criticized? Now, you know, you, Hugo, and and Mary Kissel and I and uh, many guests on this podcast over the past couple of years have been trying to figure out whether there is something uh, that you could properly call a Trump doctrine when it comes to foreign policy. And I think, you know, so far we haven't found one. We've been talking more about a, a Trump style or a Trump method instead of an actual system of belief that is animating that. And, you know, from that context, I, I think that it is important to also talk about the, the context in which 
um, you know, Trump made this fell in love comment over the weekend. It was at a campaign rally in uh, West Virginia, and yet he was talking to a lot of his supporters, and the message seemed to be, look at how I am delivering results uh, on foreign policy problems simply by having a good relationship with a leader like Kim Jong-un. It, you know, it's a, a seems to be a means of measuring success on foreign policy and of trying to explain to American voters what success looks like that is completely devoid of, of you know, any sense of what the actual outcome will be, that is all about uh, the style or the success of carrying on negotiations or developing a, a warm and fuzzy relationship with someone. Right. So having big profile events um, is the marker in, in the Trump view of paying attention to an issue. Um, whereas with North Korea, what's really required is a lot of more low profile um, work to isolate the regime, as the U.S. government was doing in the first uh, first half of the year um, and working with uh, um, allies and, and trying to um, constrain North Korea diplomatically and economically. Uh, so, you know, Donald Trump essentially ran out of patience with that uh, approach and wanted to go for the big win um, with the uh, summit in Singapore in June with Kim Jong-un um, and sold that to the U.S. people as a, a one-time deal where the North Koreans would have a chance to denuclearize. But if they don't, you know, I'm going to get tough on them again. The problem with what's happening now is that... Uh, the North Koreans are stalling. They're not. Uh, they're not carrying through on their promise. But Trump, if anything, is becoming more effusive in his uh, praise for Kim Jong Un. So, how does that uh, help us um, use our leverage against North Korea when uh, we've told them that our, our patience is limited and you have a one-time uh, opportunity to give up your nuclear weapons? Uh, they don't do anything, and then we we go on. Uh, pretending that we're making progress. Yeah, North Korea uh, just increasingly you know, strikes me as an example of both the very best and the very worst of uh, President Trump's foreign policy instincts, because it's a case where, you know, the, the basic insight was correct, that this was a situation where American diplomacy had not been working for a considerable amount of time, that uh, the North had continued making progress on its nuclear program, was becoming a growing danger to uh, its neighbors and to uh, U.S. interests and potentially even the, the U.S. itself, um, you know, that we were overdue for a rethink on how to approach that problem. And early on, you know, Trump was prepared to be a disruptor in that sense. He, he brought in a, you know, new ways of trying to talk about the problem of, you know, trying to strategically ratchet up the tension a little bit to try to bring North Korea into cooperation, that you had uh, you know, some of the sanctions pressure that we hadn't really seen effectively used in a while. And yet, you know, I think that the, the problem that you run into, the great failure of uh, you know, Trump's foreign policy to date, has been that lack of follow-through, the lack of patience, the, the lack of a capacity to say, you know, now that we've chosen this path, we need to stick on it for a while to give it a chance to actually work. Mm -hmm. After the summit in, in June, the, uh, the Trump administration's line was that uh, we needed North Korea to provide an accounting of its nuclear programs and its missile programs uh, that violated UN uh, resolutions and uh, some sort of timetable toward denuclearization. And we, we really haven't gotten either of those things. Uh, the, the North Koreans essentially said, uh, yes, we'd like to denuclearize sometime by the end of the 
Trump's first term. Um, but nothing more specific than that. Um, and uh, really all we've gotten so far is a, a uh, moratorium on testing, which is, uh, which is positive, um, but it doesn't preclude the North Koreans continuing to work on nuclear weapons. They're continuing to make more fuel um, material for, for nuclear weapons, and they can continue to do research without uh, testing, of course, um, using the results that, of the tests they've, they've conducted so far. So we're giving them time to, uh, to solidify their, their program and making it tougher uh, in future um, and essentially kicking, kicking the can down the road, as Trump has accused uh, previous presidents of doing quite rightly. Um, but, uh, you know, after initially saying that he would not be doing that, uh, that seems to be uh, he seems to be reverting to the, uh, the standard procedure. And I think it's important to conclude just by pointing out that this isn't really only about uh, Trump and North Korea anymore, because at the same time that uh, you know, Washington has been trying to ramp up its efforts to deal with the North Korea nuclear problem, we also have this, um, you know, simultaneous effort underway in Iran to try to ratchet up sanctions pressure on the regime in Tehran to try to, uh, you know, address weaknesses in the 2015 nuclear pact that will prevent that country uh, from sprinting toward a nuclear weapon uh, in the not too distant future. So, I, you know, I, I think that it is just so important for people to remember uh, you know, that North Korea is not the only audience for this kind of comment. There are a lot of other audiences where you, the U.S. also needs to be able to project um, you know, a strong united front on some of these questions. And right now, um, you know, whatever other successes that he might be ramping up, Donald Trump isn't doing that. We've been talking about Donald Trump's uh, tortured love affair with North Korea, and this is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Another new episode is coming soon as we look at science, technology, and their influence on our lives. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. The future is closer than you think. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, and I've got my friend and colleague Hugo Restall on the line from Asia. Hugo, we're going to come to my part of the world now. I am uh, you know, speaking to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames here in London. And we will go just a little ways across the North Sea to talk about Germany. Um, we have had some interesting developments going on in German politics. That's a phrase that uh, listeners might not always be accustomed to hearing. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a very interesting and important moment in Berlin at the moment because we have just had uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, who is embarking on her fourth term uh, as the country's leader, hosting uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, it was a very contentious visit that probably didn't give either side uh, what they were hoping to 
achieve, uh, you know, from that kind of uh, diplomatic event. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the coverage of this is focused on the Turkish angle because uh, Erdogan himself is very weakened economically at home, uh, you know, as the subject of growing concern, uh, you know, about ramping up his authoritarian rule in Turkey. But, you know, at the same time that was going on, he was visiting a weekend German chancellor. Uh, and so, you know, when they, because she uh, was returned to office barely uh, in the national election in October last year, uh, that really struggled to produce any sort of clear result. I think that all of the major parties lost ground. Um, the big winner was a uh, far right. Uh, alternative for Germany or AFD party that, um, you know, is making a lot of people very nervous. Um, and, you know, here you have the, the spectacle of, uh, you know, Angela Merkel in a very weakened position, trying to navigate all sorts of diplomatic and political minefields associating, you know, associated with the EU's uh, relationship with Turkey, um, you know, a bunch of free speech and, and political repression issues that, uh, you know, people had hoped that she would address when she had Erdogan in town that, that seemed not to have been on the agenda in the same way. I mean, it really seems like all of a sudden uh, the Eurozone's largest economy is somehow very politically adrift. Well, why did uh, Angela Merkel invite Erdogan in the first place? And secondly, uh, why did they make it a, uh, a state visit? That seems to have uh, occasioned a lot of criticism within Germany that uh, you know, it's fine to engage with Erdogan and, and talk to him, but why give him the face of a of a state visit? I'm assuming that he uh, he demanded it, uh, but uh, why did why did Merkel go along with? It? Well, I think that the problem that they run into, uh, and I think this has been especially the case since the 2015 uh, migration crisis in Europe, because if uh, you know, listeners cast their minds back to that event, the big problem that Merkel and other European leaders felt that they needed to solve was a large flow of, uh, you know, a million or more refugees who were coming up, th you know, out of Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, coming through Turkey uh, into the uh, Balkans and then up through Europe, you know, into uh, you know, Central Europe. And, you know, at that time, the solution really was to try to find some way that they could work with Erdogan to arrest the flow of these uh, migrants in Turkey. But the price of that has been um, you know, to continue diplomatic engagement with him, even at times when it makes them very uncomfortable. And uh, you know, complicating this is also the fact that um, you know, Merkel presides over a population of about 83 million or so people in Germany, Three million of whom are ethnic Turks, who we saw this week, uh, you know, it seemed to have varying degrees of affinity for uh, Erdogan. I mean, I thought that one of the, the more interesting angles on this visit was just the large number of people that he seemed to be able to get out to wave the Turkish flag and, uh, you know, really seemed to be supporting him in the, the streets of some of these German cities. Right. So essentially, Merkel owes him big time for, for saving her from the. Uh from the migrant crisis, is that, is that fair to say? I mean, there's still a flow of migrants coming to, uh, to some extent, through uh, North Africa and across the, the Caribbean um, in, in boats. But the, the major flows uh, dissipated um, quite dramatically after, was it 2000, 
into 2016, it, it really fell off. Uh, right, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, what has happened is that the flow of uh, migration has shifted from uh, the, the Balkan route that would have gone through Turkey and into Greece and then uh, up into Europe. It, it's shifted more to a Mediterranean route uh, you know, through North Africa, but you know, the way you put it, I think, is pretty accurate. That there is now the sense that Merkel especially owes Erdogan something, even though this is coming at a, a real political cost for her. I mean, you had a lot of you know problematic aspects of this visit, visit up to and including the fact that uh, the two of them hold a press conference where the Turkish side managed to deny uh, press credentials to reporters who were you know, believed to be hostile to Erdogan's regime back home. So, you know, suddenly you have uh, Merkel embroiled in, uh, you know, various of these uh, democracy or freedom of speech debates, um, you know, being criticized for her failure to, to stand up to that kind of tactic, tactic on Erdogan's part. And yet, so that kind of accentuates the sense that she is politically weakened at home, um, you know, but at the same time that she doesn't necessarily feel empowered to, to stand up too vigorously because there is still this real sense that Europe needs uh, cooperation with Turkey in various ways to keep the migration situation under control. So before last year's election, uh, Merkel seemed to be benefiting from the sense that she was uh, she could not be defeated. There was a sense of inevitability that she would continue to be chancellor. That started to dissipate with the poor election results. Um, and now it seems like it's even accelerating that uh, things are, are really starting perhaps to fall apart for her. And uh, people are it's concentrating people's minds on uh, what comes after Merkel. Yeah. yeah this, and this is happening a lot faster than I will uh, you know, admit that I thought that it, it would. I thought that we were probably going to get another couple years of uh, very quiet, low level jockeying for position uh, to replace her. But, you know, suddenly over the past few weeks, there's this real sense that it's becoming difficult, um, you know, for her to hold her coalition together. I mean, over the summer, we had this whole kerfuffle between uh, her Christian Democratic Union Party, which is the center-right party for most of Germany, uh, and, uh, you know, their center-right coalition partners, partners in the Christian Social Union, which is the Bavarian uh, center-right party. Um, you know, again, it was a, an uproar over uh, you know how to handle the migration crisis, what to do with you know asylum applicants as their uh, you know, claims were being processed in Germany. That that sort of question that really seems to have set off uh, you know set set in motion a bunch of other events. It's like people now suddenly feel like maybe they don't need to wait for a couple years. So we've had a, a few rather embarrassing personnel shuffles that have happened for her. Um, you know, members of her own party in the Bundestag, the, the lower house of the parliament, did not uh, sign off on her choice for the uh, party leader within the parliament, which I think was an embarrassing setback for her. Um, and at the same time, you have her uh, center-left coalition partners in this grand coalition she cobbled together, the, the Social Democratic Party or the SPD, who are thinking that maybe they uh, need to really be stepping away from her too, that they can't afford to uh, be so accommodating to her in another of these grand coalitions for such a long time after they suffered a, a, a very embarrassing, uh, you know, devastating election result last year when their base was tired of this kind of governance. So it's it's almost like the, the political class in Berlin is trying to figure out how are we going to respond to the demands that we think that we heard from voters for more competitive politics last year. 
So who are the stars coming up? Is there anybody uh, we should be watching or parties that you think will uh, will be able to capitalize on Merkel's weakness? Well, again, I think that it's going to be a little too soon to try to uh, speculate in that kind of horse race type of way because she has been such a dominant force in the party for such a long time that um you know kind of like the the banyan tree cuts off the the light to all of the plants that would try to grow under it um it is going to take a while for them to figure out who might be viable uh you know replacements for her I mean, one of the big questions is going to be, is it going to come from within, you know, is Germany's next leader going to come from within one of these mainstream parties, or are we going to end up in a situation where, um, you know, parties like the AFD are also, you know, some of these, uh, you would almost call them fringe parties, they've been around for a lot longer, like the Greens, like the um, Free Democratic Party, which is the closest thing to a free market party that, that Germany has. Those parties historically have, you know, barely managed to poll around 10% in a good year, uh, you know, in a good election for them. But you wonder, you know, are they able to capitalize in some way over the next couple of years on voters' desire for more competition, you know, potentially for bolder uh, policy ideas? So it's, uh, I mean, what, what what is fascinating is if, you know, if we'd had this conversation about 15 months ago, um, I think that everyone would have told you that Germany was a very boring country, that you know, nothing seemed to be happening there politically. Suddenly, things are happening. Um, and you know, I think that that really is actually good for us, Hugo, because it's going to give us things to talk about on these podcasts uh, you know, moving forward. But uh, I, I think we will have to leave it there for today because we've covered about as much uh, global disorder um, as I think that we can realistically expect to handle in one podcast. So I will thank you, Hugo, for uh, joining me. Please, yeah, uh, thank you. Well, please give Hugo a follow on Twitter at Hugo Restall, all one word, and you can find me on uh, at Joseph Sternberg, uh, also all one word. And please be sure to follow the Foreign Edition podcast wherever you get your audio content, uh, Dan, to make sure that you're up to date on uh, every dose of global disorder that we deliver. Uh, so thanks to everyone for listening. This has been Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and we will talk to you later this week.